Welcome to Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, a podcast that asks, are we ready to reset the landscape of public safety? Whether you're a veteran of criminal justice, a newcomer who wants to foster change for the next generation, or someone actively involved in the field grappling with the complexities of decision-making, you're invited to the conversation. In each episode, you'll hear from a panel of four highly respected criminal justice thought leaders for an unscripted, unedited, and vulnerable discussion about the future changes needed for policing. Together, they hold more than 100 years of experience and are using our insight to help evolve practices, policies, training, and community relationships. They're challenging themselves and you to get introspective and question the status quo. Let's dive into today's topic. Hi, everyone. This is Jessica, your host of The Den. As we enter The Den on this episode, I hope you enjoyed listening to the stories of Steve, Harold, Rodney, and myself about how we entered into public safety and how we continue to have passion to work with communities and police agencies to address crime and disorders. We dive into this episode of The Den with a conversation in December of 2021 where I ask Rodney, Harold, and Steve to dig into their experience and exposure over 30 plus years about why agencies haven't been able to change and what holds them back in their capacity or their abilities to connect with their communities as well as address crime that occurs. So let's enter the den to hear these discussions as we get quite lively about our perceptions and experiences. You all have had perhaps more experience, but I think, you know, more often than not, I find that if they had the capacity to do some of this stuff, they would have already done it. Yeah. yeah. And so then then the consent decree or process to force them to do it doesn't necessarily address the lack of skill set or their ability to actually do the work, which is unless part of the consent decree team is offering up an implementation team, then you're going to constantly. This is why consent decrees go on forever. Jessica, you, you're right on that because a lot of it is people can talk about reform and, and that's easy to do. To say, yeah, we, we want to be a constitutionally community-involved, engaged, reform-minded department, but they can't do that. They don't have the capacity. They don't have the will or the knowledge to do it. Everything is so superficial where they just scratch the surface or try to check a box to say, yeah, hey, look, we reform this, we reform that. But you know, it's hard work. I mean, it's it's really opening yourself up and acknowledging that number one, you don't know everything. Number two, that, you know, in order for you to really seek the reforms that are necessary, you got to give up ownership. I went through that. I When I was in D.C. and we didn't have a consent decree, we had a settlement agreement. And I felt, you know, there's nothing wrong with us. You know, we're, we're we, you know, we're the D.C. department. We're the nation's capital. You know, we've been policing for 200 years and, you know, we know what we're doing. And I, and I was wrong. We had to, you know, 
give up that whole attitude that we we can do it ourselves and we know how to do it and we're doing it the right way. I feel like the smaller departments have a level of sophistication and trying and they're kind of professionalizing because they're nimble and they can move. And then you hit this point and where you're like either small or large, right? Like, or, you know, small, medium, and then large. And then, but once you go over on the other side, it just, you just enter into the world of bureaucratic waste and politics and other things that are just really, really challenging to maneuver in addition to trying to do the work. This idea that you have to trade, is a trade-off when you want to do community engagement, community policing with fighting violent crime that they're not complementary, that they're in opposition to one another. I see it with them uh, de-emphasizing the community policing, you know, efforts and programs and, and, and diverting folks from the districts to the citywide task forces. I see it in Albuquerque, the same issues with the department complaining that reform efforts are interfering with their ability to, to fight crime. I don't know how to, I mean, if you look at all the data over the, Last 30, 40 years, uh, the relationship, using the tactics that folks are using right now to so-called fight crime, and, and the research and the history of success just isn't there for that kind of strategy. Why do they keep kind of repeating the same mistakes over and over again, thinking that just by throwing cops on the dot and taking resources away from other things they should be doing, that that's going to work? It's the only thing they know, Steve, and they're not willing to try to think about new things or, or to, to learn from agencies that are 10 times smaller than, than they are or more. I mean, you know, there are some two, 300 person departments out there that have it figured out, but Chicago can only learn from New York or from LA, maybe Baltimore or maybe uh, New Orleans because, you know, they've been through the consent decrees, but they're not willing to learn from smaller agencies. And Jessica, going back to what you said, there's a level of bureaucracy or bloat. I don't know any, way, any other way to call it. That's a bloated organization where you have 26 people, 13 of them are now taken away in Steve's case. And I'm thinking probably that's a good thing. Maybe now they're pairing it back to where people will actually get some work done. But it's a bureaucratic nightmare to get anything done. And, and so it's almost like jobs are created for the sake of creating the job. This is in a lot of organizations where you just have these administrative units that stand themselves up or the task forces that stand themselves up. And now you've got this thing that you can never go back away from. It, it takes radical change. And so I think about the people that are saying, oh, well, we've lost half of our staff, so we can't do anything. So now they are completely dead in the water because they believe that they can't do anything where they need a leader, manager, whatever, to walk in the door and say, we're going to get it done. You know, we're going to get it done with what we have left. And maybe this is a good thing. So I think it's an organizational will. And I think it comes back to leadership where you have the superintendent or the chief saying, you just lost X number of people going to patrol or going somewhere else. Figure it out. And oh, by the way, I'm holding you accountable for results. But none of that seems to happen. There's a correlation between <laughs> y'all here trying to fight violent crime and, and constitutional policing. <laughs> <laughs> 
then it's somewhat incongruent where, where people are saying, well, you know, how can I do both? You know, and I think Charlie Beck put it better than most, where he said that you can tell the departments that are serious about reform effort. Yeah. Just looking at their organizational chart. And if their organizational chart is reflective of the level of responsibility for people that are, are working on reform management and it equals those on the operations side, then you're in the right place. But if it, there's an imbalance where operations has all the stars and and, and reform has your, your weaker links or doesn't you know have the same reporting lines as operations, then you know you're not going to be able to do it. And who the people are. In reform, we're dealing with officers and sergeants as project managers. If you're talking about a, a major police operation, you think an officer and sergeant is coordinating that uh, operation? No. It goes to the highest level, you know, within the organization that's trying to make sure that we're doing everything we're supposed to do in order to operationally do it right. But for reform management, hey, you know, okay, we'll give it to... Uh, Officer Jones and uh, Sergeant Nobody, and let them uh, figure it out. Yeah. It's a skill set aspect, right? I guess there's this part of me, as Steve knows, I'm like this endless optimist of like, if our requirement for policing becomes that they come into the field educated, right? Like, and we require some level of education and professional development, then will the Sergeant Nobody end up with some skill sets that are not police specific? Right. So how to manage time, how to manage projects, how to think through organizational change, things of that nature. And I think for some folks, when we see that they get educated, there's been an error of policing where that education happened only at promotion versus when you came in. And then obviously the whole range of, you know, it doesn't really matter what your bachelor's or master's degree in. It really is about that educational experience of reading, thinking, writing, and being outside the police bubble to do that reading, thinking, and writing? How does that change some of the potential reforms? Or or does education across an agency even reflect a more reformative agency? While we're talking, this is true. I'm looking up at the screen. And this, I think, I, I, guy used to be chief in, in, in New Orleans, now chief in Baltimore. I'm blocking his name. You all know who he is. Increase in murders fueled by gun violence in America. So, I mean, is that true? <laughs> Partly true? <laughs> sort of, but not really the driver? Is that the excuse they're pointing to? Yeah, I think so. I think my view on this is that this idea of, of just if we can just get the guns off the street, we'll make all the violence go away. I remember the arguments they used to make about, well, we can get the drug kingmakers out the way, the drug problem will go away. And in England, they're now considering regulating or limiting the size of knives because there have been so many homicides now with knives. So now they're saying, well, okay, maybe we need, maybe we need to limit the, you know, the size of knives because they have no guns anymore, but people are still killing people. So you do that, then then people start taking baseball bats. Well, now we need to limit, but but we're not getting to the cause of you know of what's causing the the people to people to to engage in that behavior. You know whether yeah, it's, and most of the people you've all seen the numbers, you know on hand, most of your murders are young men of color shooting each other. 
We're not talking about armed robbers who go out to the suburbs and, and, and shoot people and steal their money or people getting shot up in carjackings or anything. It's just young people of color for the most part going out in the streets and beefing with each other and shooting each other. So it's intra-tribal. It's that dynamic at play. And so when they talk about all these other things they want to do, <laughs> where is the thinking in, well, what are the dynamics that drives that kind of intra-tribal violence, however you want to characterize it, with young, often neighbors of each other, often friends, yeah, sometimes even relatives. Yeah. <laughs> what are the psychological drivers, what are the cultural drivers that are creating that outcome? And really trying to break that down, so you can get at the at the cause of some of this. It's not, and it's not just straight poverty either. It's, it's something else at play here. And I, I don't see, you know, I don't see a lot of thinking about that or any kind of. I think the reason why you don't see the thinking around it is that I mean, it's so much easier to say gun violence, gun violence, gun violence. Like they know there will be political backlash if they say, "Oh, it's only people of color between the eighteen and twenty-five." I think also too, like, so one, they're worried about the backlash and you can't solve the elephant if you can't talk about the elephant. Right. And that's a problem. And then I think that with that problem, why they might be concerned of the political backlash as a white chief standing up there. And I would say even for the non-white chiefs, I don't know, you guys, Rodney, you can pipe in here since you filled this category of like, you know, what does this mean of you speaking out against, you know, your own like racial ethnicity lines? But I think the other aspect is that these chiefs don't have the advisement if they don't know it themselves, they don't have the advisement to really wrap their heads around some of the gun violence research to know how to articulate that, to use their platform appropriately. So it's just easier for them to say, it's gun violence, and we'll just make it a political issue instead of saying, this is systemic issues with redlining in our housing because of our colored communities and all of In blunt terms, it's sort of a disrespect for life for people that look like me. I look at Johnny up the street, he looks like me. I have a sort of a disrespect for life to the point that if I'm beefing with him, I don't mind blowing him up. I mean, Steve, you've been on some of these community meetings with me and, and you all have participated. In, I always laugh, like if the officers aren't willing to go with me on a ride along without their gun and vest, how do you think the rest of the community feels like? The fear and the research around these neighborhood and the, and the gun violence there the research shows that that's it's it's a fear-based aspect of like I got a gun, he's got a gun, my nephew's got a gun, my cousin's got a gun. We all got guns in my global security world. It's the nuclear deterrence model. If you got a nuclear bomb and I got one, then we both know that we'll hit a stagnant because we both have the respect of what does it mean to actually push the button or pull the trigger. And so that homeostasis happens sometimes within the community until it's shifted because of some type of action. And that action is what I think a large majority of police chiefs don't have a knowledge or understanding about those cultural re relevancies yeah, to articulate. I, I, I still think we escape scrutiny issue a little bit. If you look at the data, and I, I spent a time looking at this data, especially when I was in D.C. and other places, the concentration of the problem. We're not talking, that's what I'm saying, it's, it's not just poverty. It's young men of color, in particular young black men, between the ages of like 16 and 25. That is, when it comes to homicides and near fatal assaults, that's where the numbers are. That's where the great disproportionality is. And I don't care if it's Baltimore, Chicago, Atlanta, 
Dallas, that's where it always is. So what is going on in that group that is causing them to shoot each other? If you want to lower your homicide numbers, it seems to me that you should be spending a whole lot of time trying to answer that question. And I never hear it come up at any of these conferences, any of these meetings, none of your PSPs or your PSNs or your NSPs or whatever they are. It never comes up. If you look at the majority of police chiefs across the country are white males. They cannot have that conversation that you just described. It's challenging for them to have that conversation that you just described. And who should be starting that conversation? It should be police chiefs. Police chiefs have most of the authority, number one, and they have most of the, a lot of the responsibility and the influence to bring that issue to bear, but they can't because they're fearful that they're going to be labeled something else if they try to push that issue too strongly. And if you're talking about minority chiefs, they're far and few. And I don't believe that there's enough of them to, to raise the issue loud enough for it to be addressed. I think, you know, if you look at what Noble has tried to do, their voice just can't elevate itself high enough in order to carry that, that message that you just described. I think you, you hit it right on, on the head. We know what the issue is. We know that that group of, of black males between the ages of 16 and 25 years old are out there killing each other. But when we try to bring that up, the voices that try to resonate that just can't be heard or, or they're afraid to, 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 to voice it too strongly for fear of being labeled something else. And their strategies, you know, when you, I remember, you know, you go through the numbers, that's the target group, and you kind of know that, so that becomes the group that you stop for traffic stops, that becomes the group that you do this, that you do other things with, that you, yeah, you know, no matter what we say, and no matter how hard we try, people are treated differently based on what they look like and what neighborhood they come from. Yeah. <laughs> Once those individuals enter into the system, and... Right. Whether it's the criminal justice system, whether it's the social services system, whether it's uh, alcohol, drug treatment system, child support system, when they enter into those systems, they lose a lot. They lose self-esteem, they lose self-worth, they lose any, you know, real values that they may have for themselves and others. So every time they touch one of those institutional lies, systems, which in many cases are designed not to help them, but to hurt them or punish them, each one of them. When you go through that, taking another person's life or attempting to take another person's life, you or I, we could not fathom doing something like that because we've not been through those institutionalized systems as they have. And they take a lot away from you as a human being, as a man, as a, as a black man, they take a lot away from you. You just described a lot of it yourself where you, there's no voice. And mm-hmm. taking somebody yeah. else's life, it's not that hard. So some of the things that we are doing as a system, as a broader community to these young people, especially these young males, the way we do treat them when they have their first contact with these institutions mm-hmm. and the fact that they are treated 
with such low regard, which affects their self-esteem and everything else. All that confuses his mindset that I'm worthless. And so is Tommy up the street because he, he's like me too. He's a worthless son of a bitch. So I'll shoot his ass up because he's a worthless piece of shit too. Yeah. But, but we help we help create that monster by even the things that we do with them when we have even initial contact with them. The system itself helps to create these monsters. There's this inherent part of, I think this happens regardless of what type of community you live in, where whatever your socioeconomic class is, is that you know when you're young, your world is the end of your street. You don't know what's going on across town. You don't know like until somebody takes you or until you have the opportunity to go. And if the only opportunity you have to go across the street is in the same car that's shooting up, wherever that end destination is, your exposure to what's after that street is really small. And so you you inherently can't, as an individual, you cannot think past what is out there because your mind is limited to the end of your street. Until you have some of that exposure, and or a, a willingness, both an individual willingness, as well as the opportunity to be exposed, right? Like through whatever, you know, whether that's your parents, your cousin, your whomever. So when you're surrounded by people who also think so limited inherently, just because, you know, I mean, I always describe it of like, you think your household is normal until you become of age that you have a sleepover. <laughs> and then you realize <laughs> the way my family does dinner not the way is yours. <laughs> what my bedroom looks like doesn't look like yours. How I brush my teeth, shower, get ready for bed doesn't look like the way your household does it. But if you never have that experience, you'll go on continuing to think this is the way it works, right? This is the way houses look. This is the way I get ready for bed. This is the way I get up in the morning. Shooting Billy becomes pretty normal. You normalize yeah. shooting Billy up the street. Yeah, it's normal because, and in my experience of of walking in these neighborhoods and talking and interviewing folks for both research and personal interactions, right? Because that was very much the neighborhood I grew up in. There's this, why would I think about college? I'm going to die. Because Billy up the street dies and Timmy dies. my, My cousin died. My mom's in jail. My dad's been gone for years, right? So why would I think about college? Why should I try in school? Because this is it. This street, that's it. And that's a very, very, very different mentality to break. And I think that same mentality happens within policing at a different point in life. Like young officers get exposed. Now all they see is their beat and they show up only in crisis. And so their myopic look at the the community happens because they're like, Everybody is untrustworthy. Everybody's a criminal. Everybody beats their, you know, whomever. And then you get this really jaded, myopic view of the world, which is the the exact same thing that's already happened at age 12 for some of these folks. So is that look different for a white officer than a black officer when they're out here, when they're they're working in those communities? And you guys can contrast. In those African-American communities where you had to work, Rodney, was your perception similar to Harold's or different than Harold's? And how did your race play into that? From my perspective, it became a tough balancing act sometimes because you have in in, in certain segments of the community, 
they wanted the violence to stop or they were fearful of, of being falling victim to the, the, the violence. What are you doing to address those people? And then on the other side, it was, you know, why are you so heavy handed in dealing with some of the issues within in the community and disrespecting the community by coming in here, policing in a manner that that's not specific to the individual that you should be trying to engage. You're kind of throwing a blanket over a neighborhood. So, you know, that that's a tough balancing act. And, you know, it's almost like I told told two stories depending on what side of town I was on at any given time. But at the same token, you know, I knew I had to be sensitive within that community and I could not be overbearing in that community. But I had to constantly ask that community that was experiencing those problems for their help, for their answers, for their involvement for their ability to hold people within their community accountable, for their ability to to come forward with information. If you don't want a heavy-handed policing within your community, then you have to take some ownership yourself. Was there ever a problem with with folks viewed you as, okay, we can't trust Rodney. He's a a police officer. He's he's high up in the department. We can't get to be careful what we say around him or did it affect your ability to to socialize with other segments of, segments of your own community? Were you ever perceived as a, someone no, in negative light because of what you what you did in terms of your profession? I, I learned a long time ago, you got to be real with people. And, you know, some people are going to like you, some people are not going to like you. I believe that I had the ability to go into any, I was not afraid to go into any community. And I could garner support within any community because I listen to people. I listened to people. I, I gave people a voice. I gave them an opportunity to, to speak. It wasn't that, that, you know, that we were going to agree on everything, but I didn't run from issues. I didn't run from people. But that's hard. Harold had the ability to do that himself, to put himself out there, to put himself in those communities. There's a lot of white chiefs that can't do that, that won't do that. Because the first time somebody, first time a black person yells at them, you know, or calls them a name, buddy, they're, they're off and running. They don't want no parts of that. You know, when I came into Charlotte, you know, one thing I found amazing was they look for black officers to be the ones that carry the message back to the black community. The white chiefs or the white deputies, they didn't want to do that themselves. So they, they picked the black captain and say, well, you go and, and talk to, to this neighborhood of these people and explain what the department's position is, because they won't yell at you or they won't curse you or they won't call you a racist. But if I do it, that's what they're going to do. And then they and then they, they walk away from it. Isn't that true, Harold? Absolutely. And, and more importantly, they did it without having the facts behind them. They, they assumed a lot. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't like it had ever been proven or demonstrated. They just didn't want to deal with it. So so it's easier to get the black mid-level captain or, you know, even a sergeant, in some cases a major, to, to do the dirty work. And, and then they can say, well, we're interacting with the community. In the meantime, they're working, you know, eight to eight to two and and uh, not walking out except to get in their car and go to lunch. So it's true. I, I still think it's fundamental that 
that that's the way you're brought up in the business, number one, in the, in the profession. And then I think it's the way you're brought up in your family. If you're brought up in a way that, that says don't interact with people that don't look like you or don't come from your neighborhood, that's what you're going to do through your whole life. You know, and you ask Steve about what impact working in difficult neighborhoods was on me. I became, and you know the story, I was raised middle class, white, didn't know I want, didn't have a lot. But, uh, you know, again, I, I had a mom and a dad and, and brothers and sisters all in the, in the home that argued and fought. But when I went to work, I worked the worst areas of Charlotte. And and so what happens then is you become normalized or it becomes normal to you. And so when you say, what did that do to me or what impact did it have on me? It just became normal for me. You have to adjust to that. And that doesn't mean being heavy handed or being a jerk or whatever. Sometimes you got to be a jerk. But but at the end of the day, it's really the officers, the white officers who are really trying to do the, the job in predominantly black or African-American neighborhoods. It's normal. And, and so you can take a white officer from the south side of Charlotte that's never worked in a difficult neighborhood and put them in a difficult neighborhood, and they're going to have the same struggles that the black officer has who's never worked in, in a difficult neighborhood. Color really doesn't come into it. It's, it's what you're brought up in in the business, number one. And, and then I think you fall back on your family. So me working West Boulevard or, or Beatty's Ford Road or whatever early in my career, it's just, that was just my life. And it was normal to me. It was normal to see the violence. It was normal to see that families were broken. If anything, it, it helped me develop greater empathy and understanding doesn't happen to everybody, but it, it became normal to me. And, and so if you've got a cop that works a difficult side of town their whole career, that's why I believe, you know, we've got to move people around to let them see different things. It just becomes normal to them. And then how they behave to it is a different matter altogether. But that comes again, I'm putting everything back on leadership. You know, I, I think about, we were talking about earlier, you know, about uh, people and units and, and specialized assignments and all that. <clears throat> if you have a leader that comes in and cleans house and puts units out of business and puts officers back on the street, it creates havoc. But what it actually does is create change and reform without ever talking about a consent decree or anything like that. It's reforming and changing and transforming the department. And I think we don't have enough of that. I don't think we have enough strong leadership professionally to do that, whether it's white or black chiefs or deputy chiefs or whatever. I just don't think we have it. And I don't think anything's going to change until we figure out how to find those people and support them. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about today's topic, idea analytics, or work with them, visit their website, analyticsbyidea.com. There, you'll find their latest blog posts, case studies, and contact information. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe, rate, and review Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, on your preferred podcasting platform. See you next time.